Clearly beloved, welcome to this Pride Month episode on a surprisingly queer movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is Horror Nerds at Church, a ridiculously queer podcast where we take a deep dive into a horror film and talk about how it connects to queerness, religion, and theology. My name is Pace Warfield May, and I am the screaming and gnashing of teeth whenever someone gets dragged to the down there place. Ooh, that sounds like so many different particularly in this month of pride (laughs) i'm pastor emily and i am the conveniently falling pane of glass also known as the literal bane of some people's existence very nice very nice very convenient too Mm -hmm. uh so yeah um, this is Pride Month. Yay. And this is one of the first times we have episodes running out running through the entire duration of June. So every mm. single episode every single Thursday this month you get a fun queer episode from Horror Nerds at Church because I know that's everyone's number one way to celebrate Pride is by listening to our podcast. Obviously. Right. And also buying our very fun queer merch, which, which you definitely is should do. Right, right. So, um, by no plan of ours that either of us, I think, were consciously aware of, did we pick this pretty gay movie <laughs> to be in Pride Month? But I'm happy it is. Yeah, I. Uh, it definitely was not like. It was intentionally chosen. I chose it intentionally because of spoilers. Never seen it. But. I had no idea it was queer. Right, right. And I had forgotten, like, but as soon as it was, like, building up to that moment, in fact, it was, like, earlier, we'll need to announce it at some point, but anyway, it was earlier in the movie when she first gets possessed by that guy, and as we were watching it together, I was like, oh, yeah, there's going to be this weird, like, sapphic scene later on. I can't Mm -hmm. wait for Emily to see this, since this is her first time watching it. So... Yeah, and I was watching it with Susanna, and Susanna, for Susanna, it started with the pottery scene, so. (laughs) I mean, yes, yes. Um, We're also recording this, so this is being recorded a few weeks early, as is hopefully always the case although (laughs) as you know if you listened sometimes that's not the case and we have to do a real fast editing turnaround Mm -hmm. but anyway and we are recording this the day after the 2022 chainsaw awards by fangoria Mm -hmm. you can still watch them if you miss them on shutter they're available uh once they are recorded they're available forever to watch on shutter so you can go back and watch it if you want but i am proud to say that Nope won a few awards, including Best Director, uh, Jordan Peele, and we're covering that later on um, in this episode. So it was really fun. In this season, not in this episode. Yeah. 
Thank you. And this season. With this special episode. guest Rob Pitts. Which I'm yeah, I'm super about. excited for that. Yeah. And uh, uh, the Chainsaw Awards featured a lot of queer representation. Probably the most queer representation out of any of the Chainsaw Awards I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Um, not just like queer films and projects that were nominated and queer actors, but also a lot of the presenters they chose were queer. They had Pe- uh, Peaches Christ as one of the presenters. She's a drag queen. And Jamie, um, no, I'm forgetting her last name, Jamie Clayton, who's a trans woman who also played Hellraiser in the 2022 Hellraiser film. Mm. So uh, all sorts of cool stuff there. So yeah. check it out if you haven't. Nice. Yes, I did not watch them, but I did get updates from Pace. Pace yeah. did a whole live tweet, so if you go back yeah. to, you know, May 21st-ish on yeah. Pace's Twitter. <laughs> yep, you can, you can follow on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, what else have I been watching? Not much. I've, I don't know why, I just haven't been, oh, I know why. I got a PS5 because <laughs> of, um... But that's because why spend my um, tax refund responsibly? Um, so instead, I'll just buy a PS5. But I bought it in part because it has a 4K Blu-ray player so I can watch mm. all my 4K Blu-rays. Um, but anyway, that's also why I haven't been watching much because I've been kind of absorbed in some video gaming, which happens every now and again. Um, playing Star Wars... Uh, Jedi Survivor, which we'll cover in our upcoming season, or at least I'll talk about it a little bit since it's canon. But anyway, what about you, Emily? What have you been watching? What have you been up to? Um, blasted through the newest season of Queer Eye, um, which was just like good and fun. There's a little bit that there's like one episode that I not everybody in the house could watch, um, but for the most part, it was just a, it's a pretty good season. Um, it seems like they have learned some. My goal is to have, like, every single person in my house nominate someone else in my house and see if they'll just do our whole house. If they ever come to Baltimore. Which <laughs> may or may not happen. Um, but also, the Hillsong documentary came out, the first two episodes of that. Oh, um, yeah. So watched that literally last night. And there's, like, ugh. It's fascinating, like, the dynamics and the way people talk about Christianity as if, like, the only thing that exists is the, like, evangelical, quote-unquote, non-denominational. But it was really interesting to watch the documentary about real-life megachurch while having recently watched the series Greenleaf, which is about a black megachurch family. Um, and very different, very different thing. Um... Yeah. So that was fun. And I just finished listening to When the Angels Left the Old Country, which has some ghosts. Um, they're actually called Dybbuks, which is, I think, which is, to my understanding, from Judaism um, and Jewish traditions and mythologies. Um, it was a really cute book, but now that means that I'm done, that I can move on to From a Certain Point of View. So Ooh, very nice. I, there's only one of the books is on is available on on audiobook or at all in the library systems. So I'm gonna listen to the first one, which I've already read, and then I might end up having to buy subsequent just yeah. to make sure I can The second one is 
available and has been for two years around there. But the third one is coming out this year, this September. So that's why it has not yet been available in libraries. But I'm very excited for that one. Yeah, I'm excited for, I'm excited to re-listen to because I think they have like a whole bunch of different actors who are reading the different stories um, for the first one, for the audiobook. And then I haven't ever read the second one, so it should be a good, a good read. Yeah. Mm. But I I also haven't been watching a ton of things. My life has been pretty consumed by work and role for sermon, which... Hopefully, by the time this comes out, we will have some more role for sermons with potentially some special Pride Month guests. So I'm really stoked I'm um, super about potential Pride Month guests. Um, Me too. Me too. They're awesome. Yay. Uh, I've been reading a shit ton as well. I also just finished a writing retreat on my dissertation when I'm recording this. Mm-hmm. So that's another reason I haven't been watching much. Um, but I have been reading and writing a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, some for my dissertation, a lot for just fun. Uh, I read so freaking much lately. It's just an audiobook thing. Like, mm-hmm. I used to always have a podcast on in the background no matter what I was doing. If I could do something with my hands but have my mind occupy with a podcast, then I would do it. Mm-hmm. And um, lately that's morphed into audiobooks, so I go mm-hmm. through like an audiobook every other day or so yeah. uh, doing that. But been reading quite a bit that way. And I still read like through uh, my Kindle and also, especially for my dissertation, I do a lot of like paper books, uh, physical books and stuff, analog books. But um, audiobook reading is real reading. Mm-hmm. So you, lis- so you listeners out there who have contrary pains on that you're wrong um it's real reading there's not a lot that Chase and i are very clear like there is a wrong answer (laughs) this is one of those things yes yes. it's ableist assumption to say otherwise as well as also just being like who the fuck care get a life yeah (laughs) who cares if you're reading it doesn't matter how you're reading policing is wrong even when it's about what people are reading Yes, yes, I mean, unless they're reading, you know, white supremacist literature, in which case, shut that shit down. Then it depends on the why, I think. Well, yeah, that too. Yeah. I I guess we can just go ahead into this tangent, because (laughs) why not? We don't need to start talking about this episode yet. But I like, so the German library system has a very good way of, I think, dealing with Mm. uh, a lot of the literature that came out uh before during and after the third reich uh Mm -hmm. that was in support of that um and so what they do is because of not wanting to censor free speech it's available but you have to get but in order to read it or get access to it you have to explain why you want it and usually get a signature from um some sort of government representative (laughs) and or you're not a nazi Yes, pretty much. Uh, and or like if you're like doing it for academic purposes or research purposes, uh, which is p- the primary way you would be accessing those books, it's like mm-hmm. historical reasons or whatever, mm-hmm. um, then you can get it that way. And I'm like, that's such a good system because mm-hmm. I am all against banning any kind of book, but I do think some books are dangerous in certain hands. And so how can we... Uh, yeah. 
accommodate that. So anyway, that's my tangent about libraries and how I think it should work. I like that. Anyway. I think that would be a great way of doing things. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, we're not talking about libraries. <laughs> we're talking about the 1990 film Ghost, mm-hmm. uh, directed by Jerry Zucker. And I'm thinking, I haven't run this by Emily yet, but I'm thinking of a new segment in this part where we just contextualize the film with, like, mm-hmm. what else came out that year. I like because this Because Emily seems... For me. Yes, Emily seems to find to not know, like, when movies came out in relationship to one another. Yep. yep. Which is 100%. fair. 100%. But, but, so, um, but I think this is helpful for every, for everyone, too. So, mm-hmm. um... Some of the big movies that came out in 1990 were Home Alone, Pretty Woman, Dances with Wolves, Back to the Future Part 3, Die Hard Part 2, and the original live-action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And for our horror fans, 1990 was also a pretty good year for horror. We got Tremors, Tales from the Dark Side, the movie Gremlins 2, which we still need to cover one of these days. I don't think we've done that for the podcast yet. We haven't. We need to. Um, arachnophobia, which we probably will not be covering with Emily as co-host. I'll have to have a guest co-host for that one. <laughs> um, Exorcist Part 3, Night of the Living Dead remake, Jacob's Ladder, uh, which is another ghost movie, which we just didn't fit into the season, but we'll probably do some point. Child's Play 2, the It miniseries with Tim Curry, mm-hmm. Misery, quite a few others. So mm-hmm. that was 1990. It's a pretty good year for film, it looks like. Yeah. Indeed. Indeed. So... You already spoiled this, but when was the first time you seen this film, Emily? I first watched this for this podcast episode. I had seen the, like, I had seen spoofs, I think, on the pottery scene. I don't know if I ever actually saw the, (laughs) I certainly didn't see the whole pottery scene, but I knew there was a pottery scene and... I knew there was, the movie was called Ghost, and so <laughs> this is one of my picks for our ghost season. Um, yeah, but I had no idea any of it. Did not know that the pottery scene, like, that he was not a ghost in it. Like, <laughs> I just assumed that it was, like, some ghosty pottery channeling for making, but I don't know. So <laughs> there was a lot that I was like, wait, what? Already? Yeah, yeah. Uh, my first time seeing this was not in theaters or anything. Uh, it was actually the McDonald's VHS version of this film, which I need to explain this a little yeah, bit. Say, I don't think I've ever heard of the McDonald's version of VHSs. So, from so when VHS first came into being as a way to watch movies at home and stuff like that in Mm -hmm. the very late 70s um, and really only became affordable for the average home to have around the late 80s. To go out and buy movies typically were still very expensive. Um, You could, like, record movies on your own VHS, so you would, like, watch... That's what we did every time we had, like, the special free weekend of Disney... You would oh, yeah, record yeah. the entire thing. And they the number of times that I rewatched the same episode of Alice in Wonderland or Alice Goes to Wonderland or whatever. Like, hey, <laughs> I love they're it. They're just gonna play the one episode every free weekend. I'm just gonna That's rewatch fair. it. That's fair. 
But yeah, so um, you could like you could afford some copies of VHSs. It wasn't like super unattainable, but uh, um, it was still pretty expensive for many VHSs. Like uh, in the seventy five dollar range in nineteen eighties money, which is pretty Ooh. expensive. Yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. Uh, ben Monroe in our Lost Boys episode actually talks about purchasing the lost boy is because he loved it that much and saw it like a hundred times in theaters that he like went out and especially requested it from his video store to buy a copy um and they told him it would be like 75 dollars. he's like sure so he did it but like so you could rent movies at like blockbuster and stuff but like to just own them wasn't much of a thing it was very expensive and then mcdonald's started this promotion where if you bought a hamburger like a big mac or something mm. they started this in 1989 um you buy a hamburger and then for like only 10 extra bucks you could buy a vhs and what? it would have the mcdonald's logo on it yeah yeah so there were quite a few movies that came out this way um or, or that you could readily get this way. Indiana Jones Trilogy, Dances with Wolves, Puff the Magic Dragon, Charlotte's Web, Back to the Future. I all am this kind scandalized. Of stuff. And so this pissed off video retailers because it's like, here we usually charge $75 or something for this video. Or maybe even like 30 bucks for some of the cheaper, more affordable ones. And... McDonald's was just giving away for like five dollars, ten dollars, what? Mm. So, um, but that helped make VHS tapes from that point forward much more affordable and accessible for the average person to own, not just rent or whatever. So, go giant corporation. Right, is weird, yeah. but <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so yes. I remember as a kid, my mom must have seen this movie in theaters. I was only five, so it was one of the times she did not take me to see a movie that was wildly inappropriate for me to watch at a young age, like she had many other times, which I talked about on this podcast. Mm -hmm. But I didn't see Ghosts in theaters, not that I know of, but I remember when it came out through this McDonald's promotion, my mom had already had seen the movie and loved it and wanted to make sure she could get a copy. So I remember going around to a few McDonald's in the Frederick, <laughs> Maryland area trying to find one that still had the ghost VHS in stock. So we got it, and that's probably the first time I saw it. And I saw it a few times throughout childhood. Uh, but yeah. Yep. That's fantastic. So we're we're doing lots of drinks today. Yeah, drink for Emily not having seen it, drink for Pacey it before 12, and drink for McDonald's, I guess. <laughs> entering, <laughs> entering, uh, making VHS tapes affordable. Who knew? Um, <laughs> so some behind the scenes, uh, this was the highest grossing film of 1990, mm -hmm. which, I mean, if you think about the highest grossing movies of just the past two decades, they're all action movies, superhero movies, whatever. So to think that this weird romantic comedy slash mildly horror film would be the highest grossing is just a different time. Mm -hmm. um, it made $505 million against like a $30 million budget, so it made bank... Wow. It was the third highest grossing film of all time at its release. Um, now it's not even in the top 50, even adjusting for inflation. So that just tells you the the amount of um, big budget blockbuster movies that have come out in the past 20 years that really have changed the shape of Hollywood. Yeah. Um, 
Anyway, it was directed by Jerry Zucker, who is most known for the, being part of the ZAZ team of directors, Jerry and David Zucker, along with Jim Abrahams. And they co-directed movies like Airplane and Top Secret. Um, and then Jerry, but this was the first film Jerry Zucker directed on his own. He also directed this movie that my brother was obsessed with mm-hmm. so i probably have seen this movie more than any other movie in my life wow. not by choice <laughs> this movie called rat race that came out in 2001 is mm. not good at all i didn't think it was good at the time but like anytime we were on a family trip or something and it was justin's turn to pick a movie he would pick rat race or oceans 11 and those were like the mm. two movies i've seen so many times <laughs> but also I rat race like had whoopi goldberg in it so i like that yeah yeah um, this movie also got a huge acknowledgement at the Academy Awards, so it was nominated for Best Picture and Best Score and Best Editing, and it mm-hmm. won for Best Supporting Actress, Whoopi Goldberg, mm-hmm. and Best Screenplay, and that's how she got the O in her EGOT, since she was one of the first people to have EGOTed. That's not I a verb, didn't but... Know that. Yep. Is, is the music one from... What's the music one that she got from? Uh, she was producer. She was producer on the... I'm pretty sure both her Tony and her um, music one for were for her being producer of The Color Purple on Broadway, oh, the musical. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Nice. Way of to course. Yep. Right? Right. Mm-hmm. Um... There's a stage production called Ghost the Musical that came out in 2011. Never heard of it before (laughs) researching for this. There's also a Japanese remake called Ghost in Your Arms Again from 2010. Never heard of that either. Never seen either. Um, There is some buzz about a remake starring Channing Tatum in Patrick Swayze's role. Mm -hmm. That's in the works. Who knows if that will come to fruition, but that's been rumored. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Demi Moore took real pottery classes, so it would be more authentic. Um, uh, from Emily, yeah, from Emily, though, who has some experience with pottery, as we were watching, you said that she did not throw the clay correctly, but the rest of it was okay. Yeah, it's like it takes a lot. She threw the clay, and it was like magically perfect the first time, is the thing, like, okay, that there's no way that happens you have to like work with it to get it centered properly and it takes a lot of like muscle to get it centered Mm. when it's like the first time you throw the clay um but otherwise it like i was surprised because i was like this looks like she knows what she's doing and Mm -hmm. then that is how we discovered because i was like and i asked pace and pace looked it up I'll tell you, Wikipedia is your friend, Emily. But it's true. No, it's... it's true. Wikipedia is my friend, but not as good of my friend as Pace. <laughs> Fair. Um, Tony Goldwyn uh, played the villainous Carl, the asshole oh, in this movie. But uh, this isn't the first time we've covered a movie with him in it. The, it was actually Friday the 13th, part six, which I believe was mm-hmm. his first film role. Um, which we covered back in season two. He was also the voice for the Disney animated Tarzan, which I think is something that's more likely Emily has seen than Friday the 13th, I have, I part have. six. I've seen that okay. one. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> um, 
The screenwriter Bruce Joel Rubin got the idea for the film after watching Hamlet, where Hamlet's ghost tells Hamlet to avenge Hamlet's father's ghost tells Hamlet to avenge his death. Um, so uh, Bruce Joel Rubin apparently thought it was a cool idea and thought, what if that was? It was more of a ghost-centered film, but telling that kind of story yeah. than Hamlet, which the ghost shows up twice and then never again. Um, um, also with Whoopi Goldberg, this is before Sister Act. Um, yep. So my headcanon is that the money that Otome gives, that Sam makes Otome give to the nuns is... <laughs> used by the nuns to support not only the shelter because it's so much money but also like to expand other programs they have like their kids programs school and potentially even um on the other coast you know the uh the music program and the outreach of this like small congregation small parish the arena area yeah Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Could be, could be. Yeah, that's my head. And then they hired the person who gave them the check, as now she is dating a mob boss with a different name, and I mean, he's going hiding. Her background <laughs> kind of sketchy in this movie, yeah. and she might like. It's entirely possible that somebody figured out who she was, and she's gotta. Yeah. Take cover. And this was, Ghost and Sister Act, like, are kind of like the films she's most known for as well as a few others but like this was but at this point she was already like a household name she was mm-hmm. at the height of her fame and this movie just solidified it the color purple was probably the one that really got her out there in the late 80s mm-hmm. um and then this movie uh sister act and stuff like this so and then she was also starring in star trek next generations as a guest cameo role in that stuff so she was like a superstar at this point and it's like i wish we had in 2020 fucking three mm-hmm. the level of superstardom of black actors and actresses that we just don't have anymore but we had like we had michael jackson in music we had uh Whoopi goldberg we had eddie murphy like and we have we have we have of we have some and we have a fair amount a lot of them a lot of them end up being like in typecast like mothering roles mm-hmm. well that right, that's even like... the case here with the typecast yeah, yeah yeah we'll get to that in a deep dive yeah. but but what i mean is like i feel like in the there's this weird cultural moment in the late 80s before the advent of the internet where mm-hmm. an entire culture could have conversation about one actor in a way that it is much more difficult to do or one movie Mm. like the ghost being able to be be blockbuster but now it's like the only movies that can get any sort of cultural conversation are these big budget superhero movies so we're not getting this leading um will smith i think is another example of somebody who is this kind of like cultural archetype that everybody knows who he is yeah and i feel like we've we've been losing that over the past 20 years ever since marvel star wars all that stuff kind of took the bo- took over the box office and we're only just now starting to see leading i was gonna films say, with people like of color starting, in those movies yeah yeah and i feel like <laughs> we're starting actually to see and this is almost entirely anecdotal 
right but there's I think starting to be a decline in the like particularly the massive Marvel universe type of movies where it's part of this massive universe and if you haven't seen this one and that one and that one you can't make sense of this one um but like I have watched all of the Marvel movies up until a certain point and then like it it's just too much and I've lost so much of my interest and so like I keep going back for certain ones like I will go back for every Black Panther movie and there are a couple that I'll go back for um but I'm not following them the way that I was and so I'm curious to see what movies come up in this time period because I think there is space for this to to shift how we make movies and especially with the writers guild strike and the sag strike like that there is space for creatives to like be having stood up for themselves then like also well having like resisted their oppression right but to then have more financial space to be creative yeah i think it'll take intentionality to like make sure that the right people are being hired and we're not just defaulting to white yeah. people after this because that has happened in the past but 100 percent. and but i also think that i do think everything you said is a huge part of it and also i think another piece is the rise of streaming and particularly the mm-hmm. rise of streaming and decline of big budget movies that covid has brought mm-hmm. about because yeah. people just aren't going to the theaters the way they used to yep. um so it's forcing studios to rethink some of their throwing all of their money at these movies that used to draw hundreds of thousands of dollars on an opening weekend at the box office now are being like either dropped on streaming or something like that and just not quite generating the revenue in the same way they have before and that's also giving space for a lot more diversity in what is being given time and space yeah I mean we still then like don't we don't renew the contracts for some of this stuff, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think that that's uh, been a big shift. And like, as I was saying with the Chainsaw Awards, like just seeing the amount of representation of queer horror in the past year that was being celebrated at this and a lot of BIPOC horror as well. It's just really cool to see it being celebrated in a way that has not really happened much before. Yeah. Um, so. Agreed. Also, the only other piece of background that I have is the ghost special effects <laughs> for the evil ghost. Hand-drawn animation terrible. on the frames. Yes. And the sound of that was actually, this, they recorded a baby crying and then slowed it down and mm-hmm. lowered the pitch of it. And that's what made that weird hmm. screaming sound. I don't know that part. Yeah guess we can get through the movie then mm-hmm. uh i'll just start off the conversation with that elevator scene is gross oh. and creepy like i know it's played for jokes and it's the 80s mm-hmm. whatever this weird type, type of masculinity it was meant to be funny but it was always gross and creepy and it is even more gross and creepy yeah, in the pandemic COVID world <laughs> yeah and yeah well and the timing of 1990 like with the aids epidemic epidemic exactly yeah there it feels like and i didn't think of it at the time because i was not thinking about the like historic context 
historic context of a movie. Weird. Um, but, like, to have some mystery illness that's contagious by, like, touch. Like, the number of people who were so terrified of HIV and AIDS because of intentional disregard and then, like, misinformation and all of that stuff that, like, to be on an elevator and joking, basically joking about having AIDS or HIV and then, and then now with COVID where you're like, wear a freaking mask, stay at home. <laughs> like, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. And, like, I feel like we also... Um... What am I trying to say? Another thing that's kind of contextual to the scene, uh, to the time frame, is how this, like, white-collar, high-up banker, manager guy, probably on Wall Street or something, it's not very clear what Sam is doing, but he's high up in this company, making a lot of money, and giving more money to the man. And it's like, this was when George Bush Sr. was president. Mm -hmm. Late, uh, like continuing the legacy of ronald reagan's awful economic shit and so like this like (laughs) bougie white dude is who we're supposed to be rooting for Mm -hmm. um and not like the people who clearly laundering money was wrong and all that shit and like the violence and all that but like I feel like in today's climate, you almost are rooting for people who are trying to take down the white collar, uh, big business, rich asshole stuff. Yeah. I, Even like, uh, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, um, it's the like capitalism is not evil in this movie, but the money right. stuff within it is, and that like the person who's trying to launder Carl is not trying to launder it to like, it is not a Robin Hood situation. By any stretch of the imagination. Um, and so it's just like... I do think that it would be interesting to have a remake of this where capitalism is not inherently good, right? Where where there's space to do that challenge and that, like, maybe... Maybe it's the same, like, he figures out something weird is happening financially and he gets killed to cover it up, but then figures out that, like, the weird thing financially is that money is being taken and given to people who were displaced to build the high-rise or, um, like, any number of, like, reparations money, basically. Um, I think it would be cool to see that for sure. And I think most Hollywood movies wouldn't go that direction, but mm -hmm. they would go in another way that would still kind of critique capitalism, I could see, which is that Sam discovers a money laundering scheme, but it is the boss of the corporation laundering money for like the board or something, and mm-hmm. they kind of so it's still critique capitalism, but in a safer way than actually doing justice work, like you're saying, yeah. which would be even better. But either of those, I would love mm-hmm. to see. Yeah. Um, also, you mentioned already the pottery scene. <laughs> uh, pottery. My uncle is a potter. <laughs> is a potter. Well, he was. He doesn't anymore because of arthritis. But so I love pottery. Whenever I get to see it, it makes me happy. Also, Sam is an asshole and just ruins the thing that she's making. And also, this is a very romantic scene in the ways that, like, and, like, a pop culture romantic sexy scene, all that stuff. But, mm-hmm. like, all I can think as your ace borderline <laughs> arrow f- uh, friend is, is thinking, like, that is so gross and messy. 
<laughs> I am not at all interested in this. Like it's also no. super sapphic. Like if you look at it as sapphic, I definitely like it better. Um, yeah, I mean they're it's still messy. It, and that gets to the queerness, and we we'll get into this more in deep dive. But like, there are definitely sapphic elements to it, mm-hmm. um, and there's also definitely the intentional choice of having um, Demi Moore's hair cut so short mm-hmm. is like even in the 90, early 1990s that was still like a big deal for a Hollywood film star yeah. to have sh- hair that short and, and be in a romantic lead film so it's like it's definitely saying something I'm not sure if it's intentionally signaling any queerness I don't think that's the case at all but I do think that it's nevertheless very queer ever? Like, well yes there's intentional like for it to happen 100 percent also like as we saw in, as we saw in freddy's revenge um sometimes they can signal queerness intentionally for homophobic reasons well, yes. or queerphobic reasons um mm, agreed they can and also um yeah i was surprised that the pottery scene happened so early and the response that he's texted was like i mean the movie's called Ghost. And I was like, <laughs> yes. And in my head, that scene, Patrick Swayze had been the ghost. Like, in my head, having never seen the movie and not knowing what it was about besides that it was called Ghost, Patrick Swayze had been a ghost. And, like, she had been doing pottery in her grief as like art therapy and then he like comes and envelops her and like i never saw that he wrecked the thing um so i just did not expect it to be that that soon into the movie and i was like oh now i have no idea what's happening in this movie after this because that was the only thing i knew i didn't i didn't ask you this earlier and i probably should have but since this is the only thing you knew what led you to want to choose this movie to cover this season because everybody else has seen it fair that's a good and it's that's called good. ghost <laughs> it really was it really was as simple as that like there are movies that i have not seen that everybody else has seen that are like classics so yeah um also that robbery scene this is probably well no, it's before this that I figured out that Carl was evil. I was suspicious when Sam didn't give Carl the codes and Carl was, like, not happy with it. I was like, something's going on. And then the robbery scene. And I was like, well, this is not how robberies happen. Robberies are generally crimes of convenience. You're walking by, they see you, they try and rob you, you put up resistance of some capacity, they're either going to immediately shoot you or run away. So, like, when they wrestle, and they fight, and then he shoots him, um, I was suspicious. Also, um, (laughs) did not realize that him running, which is, like, what they intended, I imagine. When he, like, started running after him, I was like, what? She's the one that dies? And then figured out that, no, that was his ghost who didn't realize (laughs) he was a ghost yet. And I was like, oh, Okay. This is a, like, immediately you become a ghost. Also, when paramedics do arrive and someone is already dead, they're not supposed to try to 
do CPR or any of that stuff to them. They are not supposed to take them to the hospital. The hospital is for people who are alive and who we are trying to keep alive, not for people who have died. Um, so I just had like in my hospital chaplain hat, I was like, those paramedics are getting crap for what they did because occasionally yeah. like it is where like you should have known to call it upon arrival and you didn't and now we're here and we have to have these really hard conversations with family who have just watched this hugely traumatic thing happen to their loved one yeah because cpr is traumatic yeah so i mean he could have still been alive barely no no because he was already a ghost which says to me like oh that's fair that's fair yeah 100 percent agree with that yeah um but that's a good yeah. point. Also, um, Carl. There there are three characters I wanna talk about. One of them is <laughs> Carl. Carl Oof. is an asshole, as we've already stated. And multiple times throughout this movie I was like, dude, stop being an <laughs> asshole. Um, but like when I when the robber like called, I was like, He's calling Carl. I knew it. I knew it. I called this. I was so proud of myself because I am yep. not always great at like calling movies. Um yeah. And then, like, the whole, like, trying to romance Molly, and I was just like, such an asshole. And I, yeah. Like, really? Really? Your, like, presumably best friend just died, and you're after his girlfriend just to manipulate her and get shit from her. Mm-hmm. Not cool, man. It's so gross. So gross. Yeah. And, like, the actor plays plays Carl so well but like um in interviews the actor Tony Tony Goldwyn uh in interviews has said that because of this movie he really struggled finding roles afterwards because mm-hmm. everybody just associated him as a, this asshole. Like and like even he even had the story about like this one time at a restaurant, this <laughs> waiter was like glaring at him and then she and refused to serve him. And then um, later she came up to him and she was like, are you an actor? And he's like, yeah. And he said of the movie Ghost. And she's like, that's why because she's like i knew i hated you but i couldn't remember why i hated you so i thought you were somebody in my life that i hated i love that right like that is a mark of stupendous acting and also right. like because i would totally do that right like where you have this association with them and i'm terrible with names i'm terrible with remembering like people out of context all of that stuff and so then i i would have been her where i'm like i don't like i don't know why but i don't like and then that's fantastic. I love it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, total dick. Mm-hmm. Oh, that scene grosses me the fuck out when he takes his shirt off, spills his coffee. Oh my god. It is, and it's so obvious, like every step of the way. Ugh. Like I feel like even Demi Morris' character sees through it. Mm-hmm. But also, she's like, like in the middle of grief and this fog, and doesn't like can see through it, and also not expect it. Yes, 100% agreed. But I mean, it's like... Yeah, it, ugh, it's so gross. Uh, I have one other thing, which is the subway ghost. Yes. Um, I really love this character. It's, like, problematic in some ways, but it's also, like, interesting in others. Mm-hmm. And but I, and I 
enjoy the role he plays in the film mm-hmm. as the one who teaches uh, Patrick Swayze's character to like do anything. Um, yeah. But like, we were watching it with someone who was who thought the character may have um, died by suicide, or that's what the film was trying to say. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I saw that, but just saying that maybe that's part of part of it. And if so, that's problematic for other reasons. But it's just so interesting to see that portrayed on screen in a way that tries to avoid like it doesn't feel overly judgy or preachy it feels Mm -hmm. like it's more trying to depict a real life type of experience a neurotypical might have the person who has um some sort of in some sort of mental distress Mm -hmm. while also still feeling kind of gross because it's not actually done well um in other ways and stuff like that but anyway yeah, I love the subway ghost, even the even though it's problematic. Is long story short, what I'm trying to say. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think like my interpretation of it was um, that he was telling the truth about like him being f- set up as having died by suicide, but yeah, that the reality was that he was pushed. Um, agreed, agreed. And that gives also like motive for staying, right? Like. To figure mm-hmm. out what was behind that, why that happened. Um, yeah. But then it seems like he has, in some ways, like, we don't know how long he's been there. Yeah. Um, and that seems to be something else, too, it implies, is that the longer you're a ghost, yeah. the, the more affects you your mental stability or memory, even. And so that could be part of it, too. Yeah. Um, but so, like, it, and it raises the questions of, like, what happens to those, like to the unsolved things, to the unsolved mysteries, to the unsolved deaths. Like, how do we, how do people who are left find closure? But, like, because we're in ghost season, like, how do ghosts find closure? And how do we help create situations of closure and peace? Like, whether or not we today believe in ghosts, like, there is a sense that I think we do have a responsibility to help past generations and people who have died get to a place of closure even if that's not actually what they want but like I think about reparations and all and like all of the harm that has been done by people in this country and on behalf of this country and like how how much healing is needed and like how hard it is for us to like figure out or to not to figure out what to do but to have the will to do it yeah, thank you so much for saying that because that that brings up to mind two things for me, um, which is one, um, the episode with Lenny Duncan on Blade, mm. their real life church horror story they shared there about like the generational trauma and trying to find a way to exercise that. Mm-hmm. I think is kind of an apt comparison, mm-hmm. and then also, uh, I wanted to say. Because this is Pride Month, uh, I hope all of you listeners have heard of Marsha P. Johnson. But if you haven't, uh, I'll link in the show notes uh, Stuff You Missed in History class episode Mm -hmm. about her biography. That I'll go into detail. But she was at the Stonewall Riots, instrumental um, black trans woman who helped really create the modern queer movement Mm -hmm. uh, along with Sylvia Rivera and stuff like that. And she 
was found dead in the early 90s in the Hudson River, and police ruled it as death by suicide. Clearly not the case. Yeah. Clearly not the case. And so how that is still something very much that happens to today, mm-hmm. um, and in our own queer history, and especially to vulnerable people, in this, and among that, like, uh, black trans women frequently, all too frequently. Yeah. And so because of that, like, yes, we have that responsibility. I agree. Mm-hmm. The other thing about this is, like, there's no good transition here. Um, That's fair. The That's other fair. thing that I appreciated about the train ghost was, the subway ghost, was the, like, when Sam goes back and is like, no, I'm going to, like, I need your help. I need to know how to move stuff. And so then he's, like, actually teaches him and I think there's like this beautiful thing of like shifting when you can come at somebody not from a competitive place even if that's like their defensive reaction right his defensive reaction the subway train the subway ghost is no this is my train you cannot um and so then Sam's like no I'm looking for you and there's like this purpose that he starts to create yeah um and then the subway ghost is like talking to him and trying to teach him how to move stuff and it's like you are used to just moving stuff with your body but if you want to move something you got to move it with your mind and then like explains this whole emotions thing which I think is like basically poor emotional regulation as a way of moving of engaging with the physical world Mm -hmm. which I think is an interesting dynamic and maybe we can get into more in ghost lore but the like yeah. push your emotions to the pit of your stomach and then let it explode and that's how you move stuff. Splunkidsomai to be to bring up some nerdy church shit of the splunkidsomai one's guts are where one feels emotion mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. frequently the in the Koine Greek word for Jesus having compassion, that's how it's translated into English, is usually referring to a feeling in his guts yeah. or Gut his stomach. Gut-wrenching compassion is how I usually translate yeah. it. Mm-hmm. So, But if, um, one of my classmates did a icon of the um, instead of the sacred heart, it was the sacred splunkid somai, mm-hmm. so it was just like the digestive tract with like a halo and all that stuff. That's fantastic. I love that. The other one is okay. I love Molly and Otome. They're fantastic. 100%. They are the best characters in the entire movie. They are wonderful. They have this fantastic chemistry that like evolves and grows, and Mm -hmm. they're super queer coded. So, yay for them. Yeah, very much so. And I feel like it realistically has the evolution of Molly first, like, kind of being open to it, believing it, and then, like, pushing away the anger, especially after the police showed herself. Like, it just feels like very authentically showing this relationship evolve in a way Mm -hmm. that most films fast forward through or skip Mm -hmm. over. Which also, I think, lends to sapphic vibes because... Uh Yeah, they definitely U-Haul. Yeah. Like, yep. Yeah. Yep. Uh, we've already been doing a lot of theological discussion, but we'll just kind of transition into that, I guess, <laughs> uh, even more so. 
And the first and biggest one I think we both have a lot to say on is what is this film saying about heaven and hell? Because it clearly seems to suggest that there's some sort of heaven and hell mm-hmm. in its perception of the universe. You mean the down there place? The down there place with the creepy hand-drawn animated ghosts mm-hmm. screaming. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The down there place going climbing down and up a tree. Well, and you used the word dragging to get there, yes. and so I was like, do you even know how deep this is going? Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, the theology is questionable at best. <laughs> it seems to align with, like, generic yeah. white Christian mainline notion of heaven and hell. Oh, yeah. It's heaven like is the where good people go, Christian. hells go where yeah. bad people go. And like you can categorize people as good or bad. And the part that I think is interesting and that we talked about a little bit um, after watching is the like what makes Sam good and go to the good place and what makes. Mm-hmm. Um, Carl and um, the robber. Willie. Willie and yeah. Carl and Willie bad and go to the bad place. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like the reality that Willie does kill Sam. Mm-hmm. Um, and Carl steals money. And attempts and to kill. attempts to kill. Oda, Oda and May Molly. And Molly. Oda May and Molly. Um, but that, but then also Sam actually kills both Willie and Carl, mm-hmm. and yet Willie and Carl go to the bad place, and Sam goes to the good place. And yeah. there's a like, well, what was the intention, right? Like Sam was trying to protect Molly and Oda May, mm-hmm. um, and they were active, and then Carl and Willie were actively trying to harm. Yeah, the just like yep. that dynamic of how much intentions matter, which is yep, yep. not always the same, which is not the same as like in real life. I don't care if your intentions are good. If you cause harm to me, that is what matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And um, also just that white-black dualism. Mm-hmm. There's this white, shiny white light he goes into, which is the good place. And then there's the black and dark screaming demons that drag you down into a black hole of some sort, Mm -hmm. which is a bad place. Um, So the way that affects racism and vice versa. Yeah. And Um, and there's a choice, right? Like you only get a choice of going to heaven or staying and being a ghost. You don't get a choice about going to hell or staying and being a Yes. Ghost. It is just yeah. kind of a destiny thing. Yeah. And also, uh, la- last thing on that and the racism, mm-hmm. which also trans- transfers to my next point, I think, yeah. but is Willie being a brown-skinned <laughs> bad guy that's just this generic trope of the tough thug, to use a very racialized term, but yeah. intentionally here. Uh, in the way that that word is used and just how he's only doing it out of manipulations of a white guy anyway though so it's like yep. 
Well, and, like, when the cops are like, no, there's nothing on him, it's like, no, there is, because it's New York, and it's big enough, and it's a generic enough name that somebody, yeah. like, there is a file on Clearly somebody. that cop was not doing his job. He was... Mm-hmm. He was just out doing to get... Oda May and all that shit. Yeah. And speaking of Oda May, though, I think we can get into this now. Mm-hmm. Oda Mae's brown spiritual shenanigans. And to start off this conversation, I would like to refer you all, um, listeners, to our fantastic mini-sode on The Black Guy Dies First by Robin Armines Coleman and Mark Harris. But they have this quote that describe that they reference Oda May specifically, but they are describing the trope of the magical Negro. And I just want to read this all for you. And then we can get into our discussion on her. Because mm-hmm. I love her. She's a great character. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just think this is a good way to place this. So um, this is from their book. To be a magical Negro, one must be A, magical, and B, Negroid. It also helps to have a soft spot in your heart for the white lead characters mm. who magical Negroes invariably help, even at the risk of their own life. Magical Negroes are nice, but kind of dumb. To any rational person, the magical Negro would be selfless to a fault, but within the Hollywood moral code, their willingness, or more precisely, their pathological need to assist the protagonist in accomplishing their goal makes them a credit to their race. Then from a little bit farther down, the magical Negro is thinly defined by the value of their inherent gift, which they're eager to pass on to the white protagonist. This offering might be a warning. Um, It might involve them paying the ultimate price, which begs the question of why magical Negroes can't help themselves as much as they can help the white lead. Mm. Like, why couldn't Dick Halloran's shining powers warn him about that axe? Why didn't John Coffey, Michael Clark Duncan in The Green Mile, use his superpowers to protect himself from a wrongful execution? And... Why, for the love of God, couldn't Oda Mae Brown, Whoopi Goldberg, and 1990s Ghost give herself a better name? <laughs> These are the mysteries of life that only a magical Negro can answer. So, just a taste of that book. Please yeah. go out and buy it or get it from your library and also listen to that episode. It was really good. Yeah. But yeah. I love that whole way of unpacking that term mm-hmm. um, and, and how it relates to this film, but also cannot get past that joke about Otome's name. Yeah. It's too good. It's real. It's real. It's a bad name. Bad name. But yeah, and that's like, that's part of what I noticed for Otome, right, is like, she resists some, which I think is like something that Whoopi Goldberg does with her characters, where like, even when she is playing a trope, even when her mm-hmm. character is a trope or an archetype, there is some pushback and some resistance to it, right? Like, she names at one point that Sam is white but cute. Um, she mm-hmm. names some of the race dynamics, and she, like, pushes back. She doesn't willingly mm-hmm. do what Sam wants. She says, like, no, I don't want to... I don't want a piece of this. I don't want any of this. And then Sam forces her coerces her to do this work for him for free that endangers her life by singing until he gets his way which apparently is also how he got molly to go out with him which is not romantic it's stalker-ish right it's disgusting and gross yeah and then like when he does find out that otome's life is in danger 
his first step is not to go try to warn her. He eventually does, but, like, you know, white man endangers black woman who is risking her life to help him because he wouldn't leave her alone until she did. Right. This surprises literally no one. And still, like, that's how it begins, but then I think part of it with this sapphic relationship between Oda May and... um, Demi Moore's character Molly Uh, Molly, thank you Um, then kind of make it to the point where like by the end of the movie it seems pretty clear that Oda May would like jump in front of a bullet for these people in a way that like initially her character would push back and stuff but by the end like she was openly and willingly putting herself into danger for Molly Mm -hmm. and stuff part of it might be that sapphic thing but also it's a black person doing it for a white person they barely know, as is yeah. so frequently the case in these magical Negro tropes. Yeah. And, like, Molly is placed into this role, right? Like, she does not choose to do it the way that Sam chooses Odame to do it. Um, but she also, like, then puts herself in a, like, they are getting out together. They are trying to be safe together. They are trying to save each other together. Um, which I think is really is a helpful again. That's like, true. Yeah. Alternative example. It's still mm-hmm. super problematic and racist. Yeah. But um, having more complexity, I think, is is helpful in that. Yes. Um. Yeah. And then on the sapphic thing, one thing that is a bit behind the scenes trivia that. Is connected to the Otome Molly scene mm-hmm. is that they did not apparently there was originally going to be a sex scene and that was part of what mm-hmm. sold this movie to some of the Hollywood executives because initially they're unwilling to move on the script mm-hmm. um, between Molly and Otome and then but Patrick, but like it would be like mostly kind of how it was shot anyway with Patrick Swayze most of it, yeah. but then a, every now and again a cut to like Oda May in there, so like that was originally gonna be part of it. Um, but the director apparently never planned to include that. He just used that as a way to sell it, and then thankfully did not include that. Yeah, yeah, that would have been super problematic. But I do wish I wish they had, and I think. Susanna mentioned it, but, like, instead of just showing Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore, if it had, like, had moments where it was, like, maybe close-ups on their face, and then as you pull back and see, like, more the, like, from a distance where you can see, like, the whole kind of apartment layout, I think it would have been way better to have that be Otome and Molly instead of Sam and Molly but um the other the kind of like last thing that I had is well last two things um is like that idea of like when something good happens the like waiting for the next shoe to drop which I like there's there are people who I care deeply about who that is how like they have lived and experienced their life and i curious about it for like Sam and Molly's situation because they don't like it makes sense when you're 
poor, when you don't have money, that, like, there's always another shoe that's going to drop. Um, but when you have, when, like, you're, I don't know, it just was a weird thing of, like, you don't need to foreshadow that he's going to die. Like, we all know that there's going to be bad thing that happens because it's called ghost, mm-hmm. not human. Um, <laughs> but... Oh, if I still did the audiograms, that would be it. Because <laughs> it's called Ghosts, Not Human. Um, you could do an audiogram for this one. <laughs> we'll see how much time I have. It's not till June 8th, so That's I true. might be able to. Um, yeah, so that, I was just like... <laughs> I get where it comes from when, like, you are trying to scrape your way in, a cap- in like, late-stage capitalism out of poverty. Like, mm-hmm. I get that. Or when you have, like, massive amounts of trauma in your lived experience. I get it. It does not make sense for this, except as a, like, we're just foreshadowing to let you know exactly what's going to happen. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and then the actual last thing that I had was just the power of words. Um, we talked, we used to talk about it a lot in the previous iteration of Nerds at Church, the pre-Nerds mm-hmm. at Church podcast of, like, the power of words is spells. Um, mm-hmm. But also, like, I went through a very clear phase in my life where I was, I would not accept from people who loved me saying anything less than I love. Like, if they just said, love ya, mm-hmm. I, I, it never, and, and to a certain extent, I think that's still true. Not as bad as ditto. Um, mm-hmm. But, I think there is something about actually saying all three words of I love you um, mm. that both like expresses and enacts that love. Yeah, I agree. Too bad Sam had to die to do it. Mm-hmm. Guess we can get into ghost lore then. Because mm-hmm. um, the I can transition well. Death. Speaking <laughs> of death. <laughs> yes. Beautiful. That's a good one. I'm leaving that in there. Um, I'm just... Because this is coming out shortly after our Casper episode, and this came up in our Casper episode, mm. uh, we were debating whether or not Casper could be part of Ghostbusters canon. No, I think that's a fun question. One. It just is. Um, I think this is a fun question to just kind of <laughs> check in about for a ghost lore. Uh, could this be part of the Ghostbusters canon? Like, is there anything in here that explicitly contradicts that? And if so, like, what does that say about all the Ghostbuster ghosts? Mm. That they're somehow not going to heaven or hell? Ooh. Yeah, because the, like, the way that ghosts are in this one is decidedly, like, humans who have died versus ghosts in Ghostbusters where it's like Slimer and Muncher. Right. Um, interesting. That is a like, I don't know. Because they don't appear in the movie. And I don't think even the, which which yeah. hotel tower thing was it in the Ghostbusters movie? Uh, 55 Central Park West. Okay. And that doesn't, that's not where they are. Correct. They are in Manhattan, though, so, like, conceivably, they could bump into the Ghostbusters if the Ghostbusters exist in this universe. I think this one's harder to make cross-universe because the ghosts are so very clearly tied to actual human beings. Like, even in Casper, even when Casper, like, did have a human form, his ghost form was not... It looked very different. Yeah. 
um, and this yeah. like they basic act same, except they change color a little bit when going through objects, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 So I think I would vote. I'm leaning towards no. This is not part of I the think I feel I feel that as well. Um, yeah, because like even in Ghostbusters, the Scolari brothers were clearly murderers. They were not dragged to the bad place or the down there. Yeah. <laughs> so like, um, yeah, agreed. Yeah. Um, also, a new thing is cats can see ghosts. Yeah. Well, I mean, although we have talked about whether or not pets and children can see ghosts when we talk when we mm-hmm. with our rich holloway episode yeah. in sixth sense but that was more in the deep dive not in the movie itself yeah so this one it's it is very clear that he can yeah and like intentionally though like it took a level of him purposefully trying to get the cat to notice him for the cat to notice him the cat just didn't notice him yeah he had to until like, he, like put his face in there and looked at it and... yeah and then the cat did so yeah true um and they can break the windows or engage with physical stuff but it takes practice concentration and bad emotional regulation which seems apropos for ghosts who are not particularly known for their emotional regulation or maturity you know um yeah and the longer you're a ghost the more unstable you get particularly mental instability um which we talked about earlier in the episode and possessing people makes ghosts weak, but apparently only for like, I don't know, five minutes based on Sam's yeah. reaction. Mm-hmm. Just just long enough to let the bad guys get in and force a chase scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah. Weird. Very convenient. Yeah. Which is like technically all plots are like mm-hmm. making something believable nice to be a level of convenience yeah um yeah i my headcanon is that this movie is set in the same universe as dirty dancing and he breaks up with her moves to new york changes his name becomes a financer type person and then gets killed for a robbery going wrong i'll 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 put those in the same universe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dirty Dancing and Ghost. They both... I don't know. I don't remember what the font is for Ghost, but I feel like they both have a similar font. But I might just be imposing the Dirty Dancing I think you're imposing, because ghost. ghost is just, like, looks like, um... It's a very sans-serif, okay. straight line. Okay, I might just be, thought. like, imposing then. Yeah, but I love that headcanon. I'm here for it. The other one that I like almost more is if Dirty Dancing's Patrick Swayze became a drag queen and that would be Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for all the memories. But I don't know. They're both fun headcanons. I think it could go either way. Why not both? Because he'd he'd be a drag queen and then go back uh, like how would he become real again to become a drag queen after he was no, ghost and transcended? No, drag queen before. Oh, but Tu Wong Fu is like set in mid nineties. Oh, again, does Emily know the context of any of the movies? No, 
Okay, I guess that doesn't work then. <laughs> we can rate it though. Yes, we can. <laughs> I love that transition. That's terrible. We should put one of Brenda's transitions in, just like toss it in there. Oh God, I'm sorry. Apology rejected. It's been a day. Apology rejected. <laughs> so, <laughs> rating this movie out of 10, out of 10 packs. jars of pottery or proton packs. Jars but. of pottery. <laughs> jars of clay. Isn't that a Christian band? I think so. <laughs> it is. It is. I listened to it a lot as a child, as a youth. So, what would you rate this film? And do you have a favorite kill or moment or how? ghost however you would define it um i think i am going to have to give this um ah okay sorry technology almost did me in um i think i'm going to have to give this an eight this is hard i started the ghostbusters too high for this season um it's decidedly better than the first two ghostbusters um because and and it has it has um Whoopi Goldberg and there's like mm-hmm. there's the problematic tropes and the problematic stuff but there's also like pushback and resistance to it in a way mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. there are so many movies that just don't and especially in 1990 um so I'm giving it an 8 um mm-hmm. surprising hopefully no one unless you're a new listener in which case you could be surprised by this uh, my favorite kill is Carl. <laughs> um, it actually, like, Carl's kill reminds me of Lovely Bones. I think it's either Lovely Bones or the sequel to Lovely Bones. The book where um, the, like, spirit-ish narrator type person um, kills kills the guy with an icicle through the heart. Because it's the perfect crime because then it melts away. And so you don't get a weapon and all of that. Um, so it reminded me of that when the glass came down on him. Uh, but yeah, Carl needs to die. Not to be confused with Earl, who also had to die, according to the song. Mm. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Pace? Mm. I think I would rate this seven proton packs mm. and a... And a Add to that a collapsing piece of pottery because they're too busy playing with each other <laughs> instead of playing with the, pot, the clay. Um, and uh, like it's it's fun, it's classic, it's so like grossly cishet while also being weirdly sapphic. I don't know how to go. Right? I don't know it how to like, like even bizarre... put, frame this. Yeah. But also, I mean. All the shirtless scenes for Little Pace helped Pace's understanding of Pace's queerness, mm-hmm. so that was yeah. helpful there. I love the McDonald's VHS tape that we owned and I watched a few times. Yeah. So yeah, so all those things. So um, And then favorite kill. I don't really have a favorite kill. Ooh. I will say the favorite ghost, though, is Subway Ghost for all the reasons I've already named, so... And that, who, which actor played that character? Because he's in a bunch of stuff. 
Yeah, he's a character actor. I might just quick pull. I had it pulled up and then I closed it because we're nearing the end of the episode. <laughs> Got you. That'll show you to ever think we're done with anything ever. Uh, Vincent Schiavelli is the actor, and he has been um, in a lot of things. Uh, Fast Times at Richmond High, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Tomorrow Never, Never Dies, one of the James Bond movies, like just Batman Returns, so much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but usually has like small character roles like this. He is a good ghost. I like him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't think I jumped at all. I don't think I had any jump scares nice. this time. And I do think that this movie has some jump scares, like, intentionally put into, like, stuff to, like, make you jump or start or something. Mm-hmm. Um, into a few few of those, including, like, the death of Carl and stuff like that, I think were filmed in a way to, like, have that, like, jump mm-hmm. uh, suspense. So I'm impressed that you didn't jump. Yeah. I don't think I did. I, you know. But it's also like 1990s, so it's kind of tame. Yeah, I think the closest I came <laughs> Modern jump scares. to jumping would probably be at Sam's death, actually. Which I had a strong reaction to, but it was not a jump scare. Yeah. So. Cool, cool. Mm-hmm. Well, friends. I'm assuming you did because uh, you never jump. I did not jump. I, I did once, and so you can go back and find that episode, but um, that. it wasn't for this. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, our next movie is Nia DaCosta's Candyman. came out in 2021. So, the spiritual sequel, 2021 one, not the original 1992 or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Um, with People Under the Scares podcast, it's going to be really fun and queer because we've already done an episode with Bobby Torres, who's mm-hmm. one half of People Under the Scares podcast. And that was really fun. So, I'm yeah. super excited for this. Me too. Um, and... We will be covering, or will have covered, depending on when um, we get that on Patreon, the original film um, on movie commentary. But so we'll probably do that, that before, there. at least before the episode comes out. Maybe not before yeah. this episode, but before the Candyman episode. I think we yeah. can commit to that. Okay, then you can check that on Patreon. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um yeah and that's it for our show our theme music was by matt may horror nerds at church releases every thursday please comment rate and subscribe to us on apple podcasts google podcasts stitcher spotify or wherever you get your podcasts support us on patreon and get access to exclusive movie commentary episodes bootube episodes and more bonus content by going to patreon.com slash horror nerds at church it starts at only five dollars to sign up which is definitely cheaper than the apartment that Molly lives in in New York. Times at least a thousand. Right. <laughs> that's like that's the most unrealistic thing about the whole movie. <laughs> they had that apartment and that as unmarried people, she somehow like gets to keep that apartment and not lose it all as a starving artist who makes it like probably little to no money. Um, follow us on social media, Facebook and Instagram at Horror Nerds at Church and Twitter at H-N-A-C-P-O-D for all the latest updates about upcoming films, news, and other announcements. Until next time, keep your codes close and your made-up names closer. <laughs>